You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 10th day of April 2011. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners to the podcast and invite all of you, as always, to check into the podcast homepage at CorbettReport.com, where you can find not only previous episodes of this podcast, but also articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past. There you will also find links to websites such as TragedyAndHope.com, ZeroPointRadio.com, and Archive.org, where you can find independently hosted backups of this podcast and links to other alternative media. To all of those who have been writing in to tell me about the problems subscribing to the podcast through the iTunes store, rest assured, yes, I am aware of them, and I am in touch with Apple, quote, support, unquote, in order to get this situation resolved, but them them being their usual unhelpful selves, it's taking, of course, a lot of time to even convince them that there is a problem. So once again, please bear with me, and please do not subscribe through the iTunes store. Please subscribe through the subscription tab on CorbettReport.com. And now, without further ado, let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome to episode 181 of the Corbett Report, Arab Spring and World War III. As anyone not living under a rock will have noticed over the past few months, there has been general, widespread, media-propounded euphoria over the wave of freedom protests spreading across North Africa and the Middle East. We were able to see the regime change in Egypt. Do do you think we're going to to see that? I I think that you're going to see a lot more of what's happening right now. This is not going to stop. This is now really a a freedom fever that's caught on there for many different reasons in different parts of of that part of the world. But they've, they've shaken off the shackles of fear. And as we've seen, they are coming out. How far it goes in each different place is uncertain at the moment. But... I think that unless the militaries come in and really crack down, it's going, to, it's going to continue. I mean, Iran, you saw on Monday, they did crack down, but nonetheless, they came out in hundreds of thousands. And we have to remember that these countries have different reasons for what they're but doing. Most of it is the same reason. Political, Overall, yeah, right. for freedom, for the ability to, to, to assemble, to speak, mm-hmm. to choose their leaders. That is the same. That is the reason. Okay. Christian, thank you so much for yeah. coming in. Values of democracy and the freedom of choice that is sweeping the Middle East at this moment in time is the best opportunity for the world, for the West and the East, to see stability and to see security and to see friendship and to see tolerance emerging from the Arab world rather than the images of violence and terrorism. Let us support these people, let us stand for them, and let us give up our narrow selfishness in order to embrace change and in order to celebrate with the people of that region a great future and hope and tolerance. The future has arrived, and the future is now. And thank you very much. But, and there's always a but, as I'm sure my well-informed and perceptive listeners will have noticed if they've been paying close attention to the rhetoric coming out of the official Washington mouthpieces and media propaganda outfits regarding this wave of protest, there seems to be a coordinated, underlying, almost unstated agenda that shows that this wave of protests is heading in a certain direction. In Iran on Sunday, more protesters hit the streets to find walls of policemen attempting to stop any kind of demonstration. Still, people demonstrated in Tehran and across the country in various sizes of protests. Now joining us to talk about what happened in Iran and a bigger question, how the uprising in Egypt is affecting the politics of Iran, is Hamid Dabashi. He's a professor of Iranian studies at Columbia University. He's host of The Week in Green, a weekly online program about the green movement in Iran. Thanks for joining us, Hamad. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. So, start with what happened on Sunday. 
Well, this was a rally that was called for for the first time by a committee that is associated with uh, Mr. Mousavi, but is no longer based in Iran. In fact, is based, uh, nobody knows, in the Internet. It was called to uh, commemorate the seventh day uh, passing of two young men, Sane Jale and Mohammad Mukhtari, who, was, who were murdered point blank on the uh, 14th of fe- February when Mr. Mousavi and Mr. Karoubi had called for a demonstration in solidarity with the revolutions in Tunisia and uh, Egypt. It was an exceedingly uh, brilliant move because it forced the hand of the Islamic Republic that evidently supports these revolutions, but the fact is that represses its own people. Uh, this administration and the liberal left in America uh, viewed Bush's democracy efforts as uh, a way, excuse to go to war. And when uh, President Obama refused to support the people in the streets of Tehran, when a young woman bled to death named Netta before it was seen by the world and this administration did nothing, that sent a very bad signal to all of these dictatorships. Well, what, what should we, we have done? To go? We should, you're not oh, saying we, we should have, have gone to war with them. No, Obama. but we should have spoken up for them, just as Ronald Reagan spoke up for the people behind the Iron Curtain, just as throughout our history we have had a fundamental belief and commitment that all of us are endowed with certain inalienable rights. And by the way, these winds of change that are blowing, I think that uh, I would be a little less cocky in the Kremlin with my KGB cronies today if I were Vladimir Putin. I would be a little less secure in the seaside resort that the President Hu and a few men who govern and decide the fate of 1.3 billion people. I don't think this, this is confined to the Middle East, just as we believe that human rights are universal. The U.S. government has been planning to topple the Egyptian president for the past three years. Well, that's according to diplomatic cables released by WikiLeaks. The files show Washington had been secretly backing leading figures behind the uprising. Reportedly now, some 50 people have died and hundreds more injured in the nationwide demonstrations since Tuesday. Protesters have returned to Cairo's central square this morning, reiterating calls for President Hosni Mubarak to step down. Earlier, the president dismissed his government but refused to quit. Unrest in Egypt comes weeks after a month of chaos in Tunisia, which saw 80 deaths and the president being toppled before fleeing into exile. Investigative journalist Webster Tarpley told RT that Washington wants to put new leaders in power in the Arab world to follow the U.S. agenda. I think what we have, obviously, is the, is the CIA, no doubt about it. They are playing the card of mob rule. The technical term is ochlocracy across the entire Arab world. It looks to me like a vabank, right? It's a double or nothing strategy. They, they seem to be shooting the works for destabilization. Mubarak is not dependent enough. He's not dependent enough on NATO. He's not dependent enough on the IMF. Uh, above all, they're looking for some kind of en- energetic regimes that could be played against Iran. Uh, or for other, other purposes. Yes, as we've seen time and again, just as with every crisis on this planet, whether generated or not, it will certainly be used to further the already existing agenda of the world's power elite. And in this case, the destabilization of Iran is a very obvious part of the American imperialist agenda that has been on the books for quite a while now. And, of course, we've seen numerous attempts to undermine the Ahmadinejad regime before, including the 2009 Soros-CIA-Mossad green color revolution in Iran that failed after the Iranian elections, and the latest attack, which was the Stuxnet worm, which was specifically designed as it has now been shown to have been designed specifically by the Americans and Mossad working together to specifically target one and only one nuclear enrichment facility in the world, and that was in Iran. So it's, again, very clear that Iran has been a subject of destabilization for some time now, but perhaps with this wave of freedom protests sweeping across the Middle East, here is the next best chance to really bring about a goal that the globalists have had for quite a while. And we get a very excellent indication of that from a very important article from a very important news source. And this is the Land Destroyer Report at landdestroyer.blogspot.com, a source of information on the Middle East and the revolutions happening there that I cannot recommend highly enough. 
So if you take absolutely nothing else out of today's episode, it is simply this, that you must go to landdestroyer.blogspot.com and begin reading through the incredibly detailed reports that are coming out of that uh, source on a daily basis. So we'll turn to a report that came out on February 13th, 2011, entitled Brookings, Witch Path to Persia. The war has already begun. Total war is a possibility, by Tony Cartolucci. Quote, While the corporate-owned media has the plebeians arguing over whether or not Iran should have nuclear weapons or if it intends to commit genocide against the Jews, the largest population of Jews in the Middle East outside of Israel actually resides in Iran, the debate is already over, and the war has already quietly begun. Before it began, however, someone meticulously meted out the details of how it would unfold. That someone is the mega-corporate-backed Brookings Institute. Which Path to Persia was written in 2009 by the Brookings Institute as a blueprint for confronting Iran. Within the opening pages of the report, acknowledgments are given to the Smith-Richardson Foundation, upon which Zbigniew Brzezinski sits as an acting governor. The Smith-Richardson Foundation funds a bizarre myriad of globalist pet projects, including studies on geoengineering, nation-building, meddling in the Caucasus region, and even studies as of 2009 to develop methods to support indigenous democratic political movements and transitions in Poland, Egypt, Cuba, Nepal, Haiti, Vietnam, Cambodia, Zimbabwe, and Burma. Also acknowledged by the report is the Crown Family Foundation out of Chicago. The Brookings Institute itself is a creation of the notorious globalist funding arms, including the Carnegie Corporation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Ford Foundation, all of whom recently had been involved in the fake Ground Zero mosque controversy. Today, Brookings boasts a full complement of support and funding from America's biggest corporations. Upon the Brookings Institute's Board of Trustees, one will find a collection of corporate leaders from Goldman Sachs, the Carlyle Group, the the insurance industry, Pepsi, Alcoa, and various CFR-affiliated consulting firms like McKinsey & Company. Full details can be found within the pages of their 2010 annual report. To say Brookings is of big business, by big business, and for big business is a serious understatement. This is crucial to keep in mind as we examine their designs toward Iran and consider the terrible cost every single option they are considering has towards everyone but, unsurprisingly, their own bottom lines. End quote. So, this article is obviously referencing the Brookings Institute's Witch Path to Persia report that was put out in 2009, and what does it argue is one of the best ways of overthrowing the Iranian government? Well, surprise, surprise, the exact type of destabilization that we now see sweeping across the Middle East. So, skipping ahead in that Landed Destroyer report, talking about page 103 of the Brookings Institute's Witch Path to Persia report, quote, Hailed as the most obvious and palatable method of bringing about the Iranian government's demise, Brookings suggests fostering a popular revolution. It brazenly admits the role of the civil society organizations in accomplishing this, and suggests massive increases in funding for subversive activities in Iran. Of course, the United States has already passed the Iran's Freedom Support Act, directly funding Iranian opposition groups inside of Iran with the explicit objective of overthrowing the current government. The passage of the act was followed by the 2009 Green Revolution, which Iranian security forces were able to put down. Currently, the Green Revolution in Iran is gearing up again. The U.S. State Department and corporate-sponsored Movements.org has been following and supporting the U.S.-backed Iranian uprisings since the beginning. Iranian-American Cameron Ashraf, described as a senior fellow at Movements.org, participated in the 2009 event. Movements.org featured on their front page recently information on the upcoming Green Revolutions set to feed off the U.S.-backed overthrow of the Mubarak regime in Egypt. Indeed, this option is currently being pursued. Brookings specifically mentions threatening Iran with instability as a means to leverage concessions from the government. It goes on to explicitly call for the promotion of unrest within Iran's borders, and when coupled with the crippling sanctions Iran is already under, constitutes an overt act of war, as pointed out numerous times by Congressman Ron Paul. Brookings also suggests the use of military force in conjunction with their staged color revolutions, recognizing Iran's well-developed internal security apparatus. This was not done in 2009, but should be considered and looked out for each time the green revolutionaries come out into the streets. End quote. 
Now, obviously, that is only a short excerpt from that rather lengthy and detailed article about the even lengthier and even more detailed Brookings Institute report, so I would urge all listeners to go to CorbettReport.com to find links both to that uh, Land of Destroyer report and to the original Brookings Institute report, so you can go and peruse them for yourself. And while you're there, I would suggest you look through the ample archives of the Land Destroyer report over the last few months, as uh, Tony Cardellucci has gone into incredible detail examining exactly how these various revolutions in the various countries affected by these Middle East uprisings have in fact been manipulated and the uh, revolutions have been fostered with no small part to funding, organization, planning, and other types of assistance provided by the U.S. State Department and various civil society organizations exactly as the George Soros Open Society Institute has funded, fostered, promoted, and incited color revolutions across Eastern Europe for some time. Well, now it's happening in the Middle East under the auspices of various different organizations, and of course planned in advance and all think-tanked out by institutions like the Brookings Institute. In many senses, I don't think any of this will come as too much of a shock to regular listeners of the Corbett Report, who will be well-situated to parse the idea that these types of situations are, if not directly generated, and usually they are directly generated by the powers that be, but if not directly generated, at least used, the momentum from these revolution-type activities are used to the interests of the globalists. And we can already see signs that the destabilization is starting to head towards Iran's key allies, including Syria. The people of Syria's crowded capital, Damascus, face many of the same ills that have triggered street protests in so many other cities in the Arab world. There's high unemployment here, widespread corruption, and authoritarian one-party rule. Yet unlike Egypt's Hosni Mubarak or Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, Syria's Bashar al-Assad has faced minor and scattered demonstrations. But the situation is fluid and possibly escalating. Scenes from YouTube claim to show protests across the country, including Daraa, where there were deadly clashes. What should we do about Syria? Well, uh, let me say first that it's very important for everybody to understand that what we're doing with the world community in Libya is what the Arab world wants us, us to do, what the Arab street wants us to do. So finally, we, we are on the side of, of the mass of people um, yearning to be free within uh, the Arab world. Secondly, um, I think the world has made a very clear statement in Libya, which uh, is being heard by both the Arab people and the Arab dictators elsewhere in the region. And I'd say with regard to Syria, that Assad, the dictator there, ought to uh, and probably is getting a very clear message. If he turns his weapons uh, on his people and begins to slaughter them, as Gaddafi did, he's going to run the risk of having the world com community come in and impose a no-fly zone and protect civilian population, uh, just as we're doing in Libya. And therefore, uh, Assad uh, has one choice, and that is to negotiate uh, with the uh, uh, freedom fighters in Syria uh, to, to create an entirely different uh, government let, let, there. Let me just, inter let me just interrupt very briefly, Senator Lieberman. We're running out of time, but are you suggesting that you would support some kind of international coalition to go in and do in Syria what we're doing now in Libya? If uh, Assad does what Gaddafi was doing, which is to threaten to go house to house and kill anybody who, who's not on his side, there's a precedent now that the world community has set in Libya, and it's the right one. We're not going to stand by and allow this Assad to slaughter his people like his father did uh, years ago. And in doing so, we're being consistent with our American values, and, and we're also f on the side of the Arab people let, let me, who let want me switch, a better let me chance to for a decent life. 
In Syria, President Bashar al-Assad has appointed a new prime minister. After dismissing the old cabinet in an attempt to ease the unrest in the country, dozens have been killed in two weeks of fighting. The government blames outside influence for the unrest. Well, the situation has raised fears that further foreign military intervention could be on the cards. Let's discuss this with independent journalist James Corbett. He joins us live from Japan. Thanks for being with us this Sunday. Now, as this unrest continues, how concerned do you think the West is with the current situation? And is Syria, do you think, considered as important as Libya in terms of strategy? Well, I think Syria is obviously going to be a very important, uh, the next piece on the geopolitical chessboard for the people who are who are manipulating the uh, the current intervention in Libya. And we've seen, obviously, a lot of covert intervention going on behind the scenes, both before and during this current humanitarian intervention, so-called. And I, I figure that's exactly what's going to be taking place in Syria as the a very uh, geostrategic location uh, starts to, to become destabilized in this wave of destabilization that we've uh, been seeing going on for the past few weeks here. How far do you think it will go? Do you think we could possibly see the same kind of information, uh, intervention rather, as we're seeing in Libya? Well, I think the precedent is being set right now with the Libyan case. And uh, if they're able to get away, I suppose, if the forces of, of Western imperialism are able to get away with this in Libya, then it's really uh, just a question of implementing the same scheme in Syria. And we've seen how it can be done by uh, fomenting uh, and funding and training and arming and supplying the rebel forces in a country in, in a basically covert attempt to implement regime change. And I think something similar could be attempted in Syria. Uh, at this point, obviously, uh, there's, no, there's no indication that there's any type of military intervention that's, that's likely to take place. But we've seen the, uh, the rhetoric building up for a no-fly zone, no fly zone exactly the way that the Libyan intervention was uh, begun. But if this is part of a larger unfolding agenda that is seeking to liquefy the current state of geopolitical relations in the region in order to set the pieces back on the table in the order that the globalists want, then exactly how is this agenda going to unfold and what is the ultimate aim of the globalists? Well, as long, long time listeners of the Corbett Report might remember, way back in episode two of this podcast, I posited that World War III starts in Iran, and I think that holds true exactly as much today as it did then. Even if the war, when it comes, does not look like a conventional war, maybe it will look like a color revolution and uprising from within, and will actually contain people in Iran who genuinely do thirst for freedom and genuinely are fighting for their own rights under an oppressive regime, and should be applauded for that. But as with all of these geopolitical wranglings, it's never quite that straightforward, and unfortunately the momentum of various violent revolutions can be used against the revolutionaries to create a system that will once again help to propagate and further spread imperialist powers as the globalists seek to consolidate their control and project their force even further around the world. And that's exactly what we've seen with the incredibly terrible precedent that's been set with the Libyan humanitarian intervention, whereby, of course, NATO forces basically bombarded a country after funding and fomenting unrest within that country. And again, I will provide links to some reports on that, including the Land Destroyer reports on the Libyan unrest. So you can go and see for yourself how exactly how the Libyan unrest was funded and fomented by outside interests that then used that revolution that they themselves fomented as an excuse to go in and bomb the country. But if World War III does start in Iran, and if this wave of destabilization is heading toward Iran, then exactly how is this going to unfold, and who is the real target of what's happening here? Well, this is something that I first attempted to articulate back in late February, when I was a guest on The Alex Jones Show, guest-hosted by Aaron Dykes. What do you think is most important right now in the Middle East as we see uh, North Africa, uh, the peninsula region, and really that whole area just west of Iraq all unfolding into uh, crisis? And the looming question, will world, worldwide rise in unrest, uh, you know, culminate? 
Well, it's a good question, and uh, it's one that, that's absolutely vital for us to deal with right now, because although I've seen some great coverage of this in the alternative media that seems to be casting a skeptical eye to what's going on, unfortunately, I don't see that filtering down to, to a lot of the people that I, that I see on a daily basis uh, here, and um, I... Uh, it's unfortunate to me that there are so many people who are who are buying into this uh, rather unquizzically, just that they're toppling dictators in the Middle East, so everything's going to be uh, sunshine and rainbows and lollipops. But, of course, we know that this is part of a, a much, much greater uh, plan and an agenda that's unfolding right now. And uh, it seems to me that, uh, to take a Hansel and Gretel analogy, the, uh, the globalist-controlled uh, corporate and foundation-funded media loves to create these these houses of candy for us out in the woods because we're lost and starving and, and we've come across this house made of candy. Oh, it looks so good. Let's, let's go and eat it and we'll stay in it. And this nice little old lady comes and invites us in. And of course, she just wants to shove us into the oven and eat us. And, th- and that's to me is the analogy of what's going on here. Of course, they're going to create these, these wonderful looking events that are going to be all about peace and democracy even as they're at the exact same time about bombing people, you know, in, in other countries, exact continuation of the neocon agenda. But uh, most uh, most people on the left side of the false left right paradigm won't really won't really catch on to that. And and it's it's unfortunate to me because it seems there is a, a geopolitical grand chessboard and it is being used to play this this great game. And unfortunately, the public is trapped playing checkers while the globalists are playing chess. And if that's the case, I mean, we're going to lose every single time. But it seems to me there is an elephant in the room here, and it's a billion-person elephant in the room, and it's called China. And I think that, to me, is what a lot of this is aimed at. And uh, and we can see it in country after country where this destabilization is happening, from uh, from Yemen to Egypt to Libya. And uh, I've got some articles here that, that, that showcase what's going on pretty well. Uh, it, all news that's happening in, in very recent times that has to do with the, with these countries and the, these dictators that are being toppled now. Um, of course, all of these dictators are being propped up by the U.S. and with U.S. aid and have been in power because they have been serviceable puppets to the U.S. But the question is, uh, have they been the, the greatest puppets and can, can better puppets be installed? So... If you take a look at the Jamestown Foundation, for example, they have an article, uh, Burgeoning China-Yemen Ties Showcase Beijing's Middle East Strategy. And it, it talks about how Hu Jintao has just invited President Ali Abdullah Saleh over to China for an historic six-day summit to talk about expanding ties between China and Yemen. And it says here, China's stake in Yemen, however, goes far beyond the energy and trade spheres. Beijing is determined to strengthen its role as an emerging political and diplomatic player in the Middle East. Beijing's diplomatic and economic overtures to Yemen provide a glimpse into China's grand strategy in the region. And surprise, surprise, now Ali Abdullah Saleh is in trouble because people are trying to overthrow him. Uh, you go to Egypt, you have Mubarak, who of course was propped up with USAID, the second largest recipient of USAID, so was a U.S. serviceable puppet for the, not the Americans, of course, but the New World Order that controls the American government. And uh, you go back to, you can even go to the State Information Service, uh, sys.gov.eg, and you can get a report, Mubarak, China-Africa Partnership to Achieve Peace Development. And it talks about a, a, con- a conference that was happening in 2009. Mubarak hosted uh, Hu Jintao and a Chinese delegation as they're talking about expanded uh, Chinese-African cooperation. And then when you go to Libya, of course you're talking about oil, and it's not so much that the New World Order needs to control that oil for themselves, it's that they need to stop it from from falling into the hands of the Chinese, because uh, obviously China is the billion-person elephant in the room, and it's consuming oil at a great rate, so controlling uh, China's oil reserves is an extremely important part of this game. So you can go to thestreet.com, they have an article from the 24th of February of this year, um, China Oil Company Attacked in Libya. So you have these spontaneous protests of, uh, you know, people who want to overthrow the dictator who are also attacking Chinese oil companies. So it seems to me in in country after country, there seems to be a a certain direction that these are heading in. And I'm not saying this is the only thing that this is about, but I think that there is some, some aspect of the geopolitical great game being played here. Well, sadly, this rather sobering conclusion that we are witnessing the beginnings of the setting of the geopolitical chessboard so that the great engagement between China, Russia, and the NATO-aligned imperialist forces of the globalists will ultimately stage Armageddon. Unfortunately, that sobering conclusion is borne out in numerous analyses, and we are seeing more and more people picking up on this, including Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. 
Well, it certainly seems to me that the the long-term goal of this would be to encircle China and Russia and to really line up the chessboard so that that's the final confrontation, so to speak. And and I I don't know if we'll even get to that point, because even as as the hegemony starts to to exert its power, the cracks are are showing in the the alliances. And uh, even Germany was quite reticent with with this NATO action, and we could even conceivably see Germany coming out of NATO. Um, All these types of uh, new alliances and and, and, uh, breaks in the system are forming at this time. Do you think, uh, what what do you think will be the sort of long-term playing out of this, or or is it just too difficult to to predict at this point? Well, I I don't know if, you know, some of the countries don't really like it, Germany, for example, but what could they do? You know, they're part of the EU, Uh, the currency now. They don't even have their own currency. (laughs) <laughs> they're deprived of their of their own money. They're part of the EU, which is dominated by the United States. They they would some and who could they ally with? I mean, Russia. Uh, but that's about it. But you see, Russia is being encircled by NATO. Uh, all of the agreements that uh, Reagan made with Gorbachev were have been violated by Reagan's successors. So that we now have uh, our own military bases and forces in former constituent parts of the Soviet empire. So we have already encircled Russia, <laughs> you know, we, we've, and we've had these various revolutions that we create. And um, we even have uh, Joseph Stalin's uh, country of origin in our pocket, <laughs> Soviet Georgia. So. I don't. Uh, I don't think those alliances uh, will break unless the European countries come under even fiercer rebellions. You know, they've already had some in Greece and and uh, Ireland and certainly uh, in France. But we now have our own puppet in France. France used to be the weak uh, part of our European empire because they. Uh, insisted on some sort of independence and independent foreign policy. But once we got Sarkozy in, and he was elected, as far as I understand it, with American money, uh, we now have the whole deal. So how would it play out? I think uh, it it is true. Russia is being uh, surrounded. And you can see, in fact, I'm writing about this at the moment, you can understand the Libyan thing as a way of doing to China what we did to Japan in the 30s. We're denying them oil. China has uh, uh, massive investments in Libya, and all of this is now stopped, in particular the oil investments, because they're in the eastern part. And um, so you can see AFRICOM, and the American attacks on Gaddafi as an effort to interfere with China's ability to provision itself with resources. So it's the way we are going to uh, repeat uh, the 30s strategy against Japan, and this time against China. I think all of this is headed toward World War III, which of course would be nuclear. if, if Japan wasn't willing to be controlled by the United States and give up its independent foreign policy in the 30s, uh, the proud Chinese are unlikely to accept it today. And, of course, they have nuclear weapons. And, of course, so does Russia, which has a, ma- a massive amount of nuclear weapons. And how long they would uh, accept uh, being marginalized uh, unless we can somehow gain control over that government or over enough of it, which we almost did uh, until Putin came in and, and weeded that out. Uh, I would say that all this is headed toward uh, World War III. That's where the United States or Washington, let's put it Washington and the oligarchic interest are driving the process toward a major uh, world War. 
It's simply a fact of human psychology that at a certain level, faced with this type of incredible destruction, there are certain people who will either turn off their mind and just go along with it because they think this will be a great spectacle and will want to see it unfold because it will be something to behold. And then there's the other cynical idea that some people have that they will in some way be able to profit from all of this. And it's easy to see how people living in the industrialized West in America or in Canada or in the UK or various other countries might cynically believe that they are on the winning side because they happen to inhabit the countries where the globalists have amassed their wealth and used as the military and industrial engines of the world for so long so that if you live in America, you might feel somehow as if the US government and the US military is really acting on your behalf. Now, of course, I think my listeners will be well situated to understand that that is not the case and that these are, in fact, globalist-infested institutions that do not represent the best interests of the people in any way, shape, or form. But nonetheless, we will often encounter people who cynically will believe that this will all turn out good for them, and they just want to see China and Russia turned into a glass parking lot anyway. Well, of course, that is an absolutely flawed way of thinking of this entire agenda because the entire agenda ultimately rests not in the winning of the American side of this great game, but in fact in the destruction of the entire chessboard so that the pieces that are surviving can in fact be completely owned and controlled by the globalists who have no allegiance to any country, to any party, to any race, to any gender, who cut across every single gender and race and ethnicity on this planet and will use any shell of whatever country to basically project their power around the world. And this ultimate, ultimately will lead to the final confrontation that will hopefully, in their eyes, bring about the world government and that has been written about for centuries now in the great confrontation that will make the peoples of the world beg for peace at any cost. And we saw them attempt that after World War I with the League of Nations. We saw it again after World War II with the United Nations. And after World War III, there will no doubt be an even more concerted attempt to bring this about. But just to hammer it home that this is not going to be a pleasant process for anyone, and no one should think that they are going to be the winners in this confrontation, let's turn to Lindsay Williams, who appeared recently on The Alex Jones Show to reveal what his inside oil company sources, who, by the way, helped him accurately predict oil going from $150 a barrel down to $50 a barrel a couple of years ago, and who also predicted the current spike in oil and also the current wave of revolutions in the Middle East, well, let's hear what he has to say about what is coming out of this confrontation. Months ago on InfoWars, I said that I had just been told on the phone by my elitist friend that there was going to be a crisis in the Middle East. It began in Egypt. Then it went over to Libya. It will spread from one part of the Middle East to the other. It is a master plan. I did not know at the time what the extent of this was going to be. One week after the crisis in Egypt, my friend told me again everything that was going to happen. And last time I was on InfoWars, I gave that. How that they will spread this crisis situation through the entire Middle East. How that the elite are supporting. They are the ones behind them with the money of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is jihad. It is Sharia uh, law. But by the way, that's on record that, that the West is, is funding all the rebels and starting all this. So, so that's on record. And the women of America should be raising the roof. If you say that you believe in, in, in women's rights, for goodness sakes, why don't you start taking some action with what the Muslim Brotherhood's going to do over there, those poor women in every one of these countries that they take over. And as it was spread from place to place, every middle, okay, here we go, please put this down. Every Middle East king, every royal family is going to fall. It's only a matter of time. Now, the elite's timeline is the end of 2012. They said, Mr. Fromm, before he ever died, said that the dollar will be dead, not non-existent, but dead by the end of 2012. That means that they have to create a number of things. First of all, they uh, when they told me that they, there would be a crisis in the Middle East in four to five months, it took place in Egypt first, just as they had said it would, 
and then it will spread through the entire Middle East for the purpose of getting crude oil to the price where they want it to go. I want to be now, clear. The purpose is not to give freedom to the people. I mean, who likes Mubarak? They're putting something in worse, banning protest, bringing in the modesty police. We just put that headline up earlier. Uh, they're, they're getting rid of Gaddafi, putting in al-Qaeda. Uh, they're they're going to put even worse people in. So last week, I was Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, actually met with the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, she met that for the purpose of guaranteeing them that each country that they take over, they will have the government of that country. Mark my words, you are going to see the Muslim Brotherhood put in in September, whenever they have the elections in Egypt, once Gaddafi is removed out of Libya. The Muslim Brotherhood will take over. This is being done. But the, it, to me, it's so interesting how the elite create a crisis and then create a solution. They're going to use the Muslim Brotherhood over however long a period of time it takes them to accomplish what they want. And they will be scuttled again in the end because the whole thing turns out with the new world order over a period of years bringing about total control all over the face of the earth. Now, watch this spread. You're going to see it spread everywhere. Last, Please watch this. The last place that the Muslim Brotherhood will take over is the royal family in Saudi Arabia. There's a reason for this. They want to catch all of the other countries first. Syria, oh my gracious, they're opening fire, the government is, on the people and killing them. The same thing that happened in Libya. And if we say that we agreed, disagreed with what Gaddafi did in Libya, our government better take immediate action. I mean, th this is an action that is not going to end. It, it's nowhere near coming to a close. It's going to go from country to country. Syria is killing them. Uh, right, Bahrain, you're going to have Yemen. The last place is Saudi Arabia. The reason for this is, as I was told one week after the first crisis in Egypt, was to raise the price of crude oil to $200 a barrel. Now Saudi Arabia's oil minister is saying $300 a barrel possible. Well, I don't know that. I haven't been told that, but I was told $200 a barrel for the purpose of bringing about the end result. Now, notice this, end result. Saudi Arabia supplies more crude oil to America than any other country. And the end result is what they want, which Saudi Arabia when it hits them, mark my words, you'll have $200 a barrel. You'll have 6 7 $8 a gallon at the gas pump. My son, this past weekend, was in California. He actually took a picture and brought it home to me. $4.83 a gallon in California for diesel fuel last weekend. Now, the end result of all of this is, is to take the price of crude oil where they want it to basically make it non-available because of all the crisis that will take place in the Middle East, so that they can collapse the dollar. Don't you understand that the New World Order is not destroying America? The New World Order is taking over America. It is a matter of control. And in order to do it, they have to take the price of crude oil to $200 a barrel, collapse the dollar, bring it to a situation of having so little purchasing power by the end of 2012 that the uh, the government of the United States of America will have to default on its debt. Do you realize this is a long-range program through the end of 2012 to bring about uh, basically a control of America so they can control the whole world? After all, we've had the reserve currency of the world for all of these years. There's got to be a default on the American debt. Right now, we are in horrible trouble. Just listen to Congress and what they're saying about the debt crisis. They can't even uh, get anything together up there whatsoever for Friday, uh, being the day that the budget runs out. Now, whenever the dollar collapses, do you realize what's going to happen to China, who holds $1 trillion of our paper, T-bills, and they've trusted it? All of these uh, kings and heads of state in the oil-producing countries of the world, they have trusted it because there was nothing as sound as the American dollar and our T-bills and our Federal Reserve issues. When all of this collapses, can you imagine what the end result of it is going to be? It's going to be a total takeover of the new world order, but in order to do that, they've got to get the price of gold to $3,000 $3, an ounce. Folks, please, please, please. 
please, I begged of you two years ago to buy every piece of gold you could get, every piece of silver you could get your hands on. You haven't seen anything yet. I am pleading with you. I'm begging of you. I don't care if it is $1,455 an ounce right now and silver is $39.50 and pushing 40 It doesn't matter. Go buy it because it's going to go to $3,000. Well, Lindsay, that's what your high-powered... Exactly. They're going to back their one world government currency with it. Ron Paul said yesterday on air, and we're going to add this to our article that's uh, linked up on Drudge right now, when Ron Paul basically said that he would be announcing in the next month that, that he's probably going to run for president. Now, we're going to add to that article an update. Headline, Ron Paul, gold commodity prices signal big event, economic collapse. And... Uh, it, it's a simple rule that if you devalue the global currency, the dollar, that it isn't that gold and silver have gone up. It just takes more of those dollars to buy that gold and silver, and it signifies the beginning of the serious uh, inflation. And uh, Ron Paul agreed, the one-world government crowd, the New World Order crowd, and this is Ron Paul, the big presidential contender, con con uh, concurring with us. That as they do this, they need to destroy the existing orders of the world to bring in the new Bancor global one world government currency because things will get so bad they will offer this as the solution. We are now entering that time of crises ordered out of chaos. If the ideas that have been presented in today's episode are upsetting, then you have been paying attention. But if this information drives you into a paralytic state, whereby you simply accept that this unfolding agenda will happen as if it's destiny, then this episode has not done its job. Because as always, there are ways to fight back against the globalists. And as always, I do not mean fight back in the sense of violent revolution. Because as we have seen today, that is exactly what they are manipulating in order to bring about their agenda. So how do we fight back against this system, once again, the answer comes back to disengaging from the system. And this was another post, another excellent post on the Land Destroyer Report, which I will close today's episode with. And that report was called The Globalist's Worst Nightmare, Self-Sufficiency, A Universal Solution to the Globalist Problem, by Tony Cardellucci, posted on March 11th, 2011. Quote, when thinking about solutions, many are quick to cite organizing a protest and taking to the streets. Let's for a moment consider the mechanics of a protest, what it might accomplish, and what it may leave to be desired. Take Glenn Beck's feckless and disingenuous 2010 Restoring Honor event in Washington, D.C. It drew thousands of honest, well-intentioned people from all over the United States. Indeed, thousands of people filled up their Fortune 500-made cars with gas from Fortune 500 oil companies, drove countless miles, stopping along the way at Fortune 500 fast food restaurants, stayed at Fortune 500-run hotels, and stocked up on supplies purchased at Fortune 500 Walmart. They slaked their thirst under the hot August sun with cans of Fortune 500 Pepsi and Coke, and at the end of the day, they drove home paid their Fortune 500 cable subscriptions to watch their Fortune 500 media reports, most likely on News Corporation's Fox News, a Council of Foreign Relations corporate member. At best, all the protest will lead to, while we are so hopelessly dependent on this system, is a round of musical chairs inside the political arena, with perhaps superficial concessions made to the people. The vector sum, however, will still be decidedly in favor of the global corporate financier oligarchy. If we understand that the fundamental problem facing not only America, but the entire world is a global corporate financier oligarchy that has criminally consolidated their wealth by liberalizing their own activities while strangling ours through regulations, taxes, and laws, we should then understand why events like Beck's restoring honor are not only fruitless, but in fact counterproductive. We should also realize that any activity we commit ourselves to must be directed at this corporate financier oligarchy rather than the governments they have co-opted and positioned as buffers between themselves and the masses. While people understand something is wrong and recognize the necessity to do something, figuring out what that something should be becomes incredibly difficult when so few understand how power really works and how to strip it away from the oligarchs that have criminally consolidated it. Thailand's answer to the IMF and globalization in general was profound in both implications as well in it as in its understanding of globalization's endgame. Fiercely independent and nationalistic, and being the only nation in Southeast Asia to avoid colonization, Thailand's sovereignty 
has been protected for over 800 years by its revered monarchy. The current dynasty, the House of Chakri, has reigned nearly as long as America has existed as a nation, and the current king is regarded as the equivalent of a living founding father. And just as it has been for 800 years, the Thai monarchy today provides the most provocative and meaningful answers to the threats facing the kingdom. The answer, of course, is self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency as a nation, as a province, as a community, and as a household. This concept is enshrined in the Thai king's new theory, or self-sufficiency economy, and mirrors similar efforts found throughout the world to break the back of the oppression and exploitation that results from dependence on the globalist system. The foundation of the self-sufficiency economy is simply growing your own garden and providing yourself with your own food. This is portrayed on the back right-hand side of every 1,000 baht Thai banknote as a picture of a woman tending her garden. The next step is producing surplus that can be traded for income, which in turn can be used to purchase technology to further enhance your ability to sustain yourself and improve your lifestyle. The new theory aims at preserving traditional agrarian values in the hands of the people. It also aims at preventing a migration from the countryside into the cities. Preventing such migrations would pre prevent big agricultural cartels from moving in, swallowing up farmland, corrupting and even jeopardizing entire national food supplies. See Monsanto. Those familiar with the UN's Agenda 21, the more recent UN climate change program, and the globalist endgame may understand the deeper implications and dangers of such a migration and why it needs to be stopped. By moving to the city, people give up private property, cease pursuing productive occupations, and end up being folded into a consumerist paradigm. Within such a paradigm, problems like overpopulation, pollution, crime, and economic crises can only be handled by a centralized government and generally yield political solutions such as quotas, taxes, micromanagement, and regulations, rather than meaningful technical solutions. Also, such problems inevitably lead to a centralized government increasing its own power, always at the expense of the people and their freedom. The effects of economic catastrophe are also greater in a centralized, interdependent society where everyone is subject to the overall health of the economy for even simple necessities like food, water, and electricity. Self-sufficiency and the harnessing of technology in the hands of the people are the greatest fears of the global oligarchy. Fears that oligarchs throughout the centuries have harbored. Simply boycotting the globalist corporations and replacing them with local solutions is something everyone can afford to do starting today. We have begun to seize back the media. Now it is time to seize back the other levers of power. Now is the time to recognize true freedom as being self-sufficient as a nation, as a community, and as a household, and start living it every day. End quote. Once again, I urge listeners to go and read that report in its entirety and to begin thinking about these issues for yourself because it is self-evident to myself and many other people that we are in fact feeding the military, industrial, corporate, governmental, media monstrosity that is using our tax dollars and our consumerist dollars to fund the military which it uses to project its force around the world and to further centralize control in their own hands. We have the power to take that away from them simply by refusing to give them our time and our money and our labor. No one is saying it, this is going to be an easy task or one that will be completed overnight. But in the long run, we cannot afford to let the globalists have their way with us or with this world any longer. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.